Well, again, as I said, we're, we're looking at um, shame and suffering. Again, I feel ashamed for being dumb and slamming my finger in the door and having to suffer. Uh, I don't know how much salvation comes out of that, but uh, those are my sort of three headings for this morning as we're looking at 2 Timothy. I just realized I've labeled it 1 Timothy, but it's 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 18. Now, let me ask you, have you ever had a, a, a person that you know that you were ashamed of? You were ashamed of them for whatever reason, where, where association with them uh, make people think of you a certain way. I had a good friend in college. Uh, he was a young Baptist guy. No offense to his denominational background, but he was, he was preaching at a young age, uh, really had a, uh, a desire for the truth, uh, for speaking the truth. Uh, then he went to seminary, and he began to think a little bit differently. And then he went to another more liberal seminary, and, and he got another degree, and he began to think a little bit more differently. Then he went out west, and he received another degree, and he began to think even more differently than he once had. Then a few years went by, and I turned on the news, the national news, and there was my old friend in the middle of a, of a chaotic event, spewing hatred as a mouthpiece for, for different organizations, not trying to bring uh, peace and reconciliation as I think he would have years ago. And his actions made me cringe to the point where I did not want to be associated with him. I was ashamed of my friend, or, or, or rather, I was ashamed of what he had become. I didn't want to be associated with him. Why? Because his actions were not normal. He was acting strangely. I knew people would see this report, and they would think this was not a rational person. When Paul writes to Timothy, he is in prison. Now, we have the hindsight of, of church history and, 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 and an awareness of the growth of the, of the Christian church around the world. Uh, we've seen the amount of Bibles that have been printed. But Timothy doesn't have that. All Timothy had was what Paul taught him. He has uh, what his initial faith had convinced him of. And he has the Holy Spirit convicting him. So Timothy is going to have to rely on those things as he decides whether to continue in his ministry or whether he throws in the towel and goes another way like so many others had before him. And this is where we pick up in our series on 2 Timothy. Paul has concern for the gospel and his spiritual son, Timothy, and his letter is not to name and claim things that have not been promised to him. His letter is not about how life as a Christian is a cakewalk. His letter is not about how Timothy can have nice things if he would just have enough faith. No, really the opposite. This, this letter in fact says, Timothy, hard times are coming. And you need to know and be prepared but it's worth it, Timothy. It, it is worth it. So what does Paul 
want Timothy to know and be prepared for, as I said at the beginning, these three things, shame, suffering, and salvation. Shame, verse 8, Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Well, whenever we see a therefore, we want to know what is the therefore, therefore. It's connected to what we looked at last week. Paul is reminding Timothy that God has given his Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is not a spirit of fear or timidity or cowardice, but a spirit of power, a spirit of love, a spirit of self-control. And because he is a spirit who gives power and love and self-control, you can stand tall amidst all the temptations to pull back and to be ashamed. And there are three ways that, uh, that Timothy will be tempted to feel ashamed. And I reckon that these are the same for us today. What are they? Shame for the name of Christ. Shame for the people of Christ. And shame for the gospel of Christ. If they were not a real threat to Timothy, then why would Paul write about it? If Paul himself had not felt them, it would never have been necessary for him to write years before in Romans chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. If it were not common to men, then Jesus would not have issued a warning in chapter 8. For whoever is ashamed of me, my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed, who comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We are all more sensitive to public opinion than I think we like to admit. And we tend to bow down to too readily before the, the pressures that come at us. Who wants to stand before elite company and say that a, a peasant Jew, a Jewish man, became the, the substitutionary atonement for all of mankind? It just sounds, if you put yourself in Timothy's situation, it sounds ridiculous to go to the Greeks, you know, the philosophers, the brilliant minds, and say, no, no, I'll tell you what the world is about. It's about this poor Jewish carpenter who came and taught these things. Whose life, he is the creator and author and sustainer of all life. It all hangs on him, his death and resurrection. Hymenaeus, for example, viewed Paul's imprisonment as the public proof that the Holy Spirit was not pleased with Paul, that he was not with him. Even those who were fighting against Paul all during this time They used similar arguments. They were trying to show that that Paul was in the wrong and the Holy Spirit was showing his disapproval by putting him in prison. And in all of that thinking and in all of the, the chaos and confusion surrounding all of that, Timothy has to make a decision. Paul describes himself as the Lord's prisoner, meaning he may be in Caesar's prison. He may be in his cell, but he is not a captive of Nero. He is captive of Christ. And the apostle is proud. He's proud of that. He's not ashamed of that. Things you think the world would say that's shameful, he is proud. 
And it made me wonder, of all the people that are going to walk into all the churches around the world today and have already happened uh, around the world on a Sunday, especially those who are coming, uh, where coming to church costs little more than just an hour or two on a Sunday, what percentage would come if it cost something more? Now, I want to say that graciously because I, I'm not, I, I, I don't mean this to trample on people because my hope is that people are growing in their, their faith and hope and love and their dependence on Christ is, is growing all the more. But I've often wondered if and when persecution comes, how many would remain? And how many who had once made profession would renounce and be ashamed? It's a question I ask myself every so often. In the second half of verse 12, Paul comes back to this issue of shame again. Where he says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Why is Paul unashamed of the gospel? Why is Paul unashamed of Christ? Because he knows what he knows. Because he trusts in what he knows and believes. And the question is, does Timothy? Paul knows the gospel is folly to a perishing world, but God's servants are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the very wisdom of God. In fact, Paul asked the churches that they would pray for him, that he would not be ashamed of the gospel, but present it boldly before all the courts and the kings that he would stand before. It's funny the, the ebbs and flows of, of, of what the world views as shameful throughout history. You know, I think you can all attest to this, but you know, the things that were once considered shameful are now readily accepted. And things that were once readily accepted are now considered shameful. And the gospel is not immune to this. And so the what is sort of the natural following uh, of uh, being ashamed or, or standing up for something? The thing that follows not being ashamed is suffering. And so Paul continues, But share in my suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, I think we need to be clear on suffering because there is suffering for, doing, for choosing God's will like a person choosing to abstain from sex before marriage and then suffers a, a mocking or humiliation, they have done what is good. But sometimes people suffer for being jerks. For instance, when I was at Auburn, there was a, a religious group that claimed to be Christian and they would stand up in the middle of the main concourse and tell everyone that they were going to hell unless they became sinless and perfect. Well, needless to say, those people suffered the onslaught of the student body who would yell them and ridicule them and throw things at them. Those people are suffering for all the wrong reasons. Or if you support a, uh, a particular political candidate 
and people attack you for views that are posted online, you're not necessarily suffering for doing the work of God. What Paul is talking about here is suffering on behalf of the gospel. Listen to Jesus' words from the upper room in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Rand preached, uh, sorry, prayed, uh, mentioning the Beatitudes. In the, in the teaching on the Beatitudes, Jesus finishes, with the, finishes his list with suffering. As if to say, when your life looks like all these things, you will suffer. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Suffering is part of God's gospel blessing. When Jesus called Paul on the road to Damascus, he immediately sends Ananias to him to say, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake, for the sake of my name. Paul wasn't saying, you know, hey, listen, whoa, I thought Christianity, this Christianity thing was uh, supposed to make my life easier. Uh, he wasn't saying, you know, I thought material blessings were, were, were coming my way if I went down this path. Um, He wasn't saying, I I thought all the bad things would be kept away if I convert. He wasn't saying, I I thought I was promised protection from uh, all the bad parts of life. In fact, later Paul would write to the church in Corinth, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our own bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh so death is at work in us but life in you. If anything, Paul wants Timothy and the church to consider suffering a privilege. To the Philippians, he writes that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering, a privilege? What? It's crazy. It's a paradox. Now listen, we know the types of sufferings that were happening in the early church in these days, uh, that the the early church faced. uh, Imprisonment, death. Uh, uh, penalties, losses. Now, we live in a free society where there are not those types of trials that we face. And so what sufferings do we face today as Christians? I'm sure many of you can testify to the, the losing of friends when your life was transformed by Christ. Probably more of you can testify to the breakdown of family relationships because of your faith. In Australia, we, there were a number of young people 
who had come to faith through various Christian outreach um, uh, efforts that, that were there. And what happened is that there was a generation of non-Christian parents raising Christian children. It was so odd for me to be mentoring a, a, a young person who would go home and their parents knew nothing of Jesus. And so these young people, they, they, they worked really hard. They labored to understand what God desired of them how they should act as it related to unbelieving parents and the pain and the struggle that took place in their hearts as they so strongly desired for their parents to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. It's painful. None of us wants to drive people away. But we also know we can never abandon Christ or at least it would be foolish to turn our backs on the, the life giver who has made known to us the way of salvation. Which brings us to the third point, salvation. First, Paul doesn't want Timothy to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, of Paul. Second, Paul wants Timothy to share in the suffering for the gospel. And finally, he wants Timothy to guard the gospel of salvation. Shame, suffering, salvation. In verses 9 and 10, Paul outlines salvation. He outlines the gospel. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When I started working on this sermon, I thought it was going to be a more somber one. Um, you know, shame, suffering, uh, it's not terribly, <clears throat> excuse me, terribly positive things. Uh, but I... I realized that when weighed against salvation, it's not even close. Shame, suffering, when weighed against salvation, it's not even close. I just had an anemic view of salvation. Shame on me. But praise God for His Word, which has helped me to see. John Stott, in his commentary agrees with this, that the world has a very anemic view of salvation. And so he says, salvation is a majestic word, denoting that comprehensive purpose of God by which he justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies his people. First, pardoning our offenses and accepting us as righteous in his sight through Christ then progressively transforming us by His Spirit into the image of His Son until we finally become like Christ in heaven with new bodies in a new world. That's what Paul is describing here in these verses. He saved us. He called us with a holy calling. He brought life and immortality to light. We are saved forgiven the debt that we could never pay, we are called to be set apart, holy, different as God's children. And we have eternal life because of Christ. And we live in light of that information. 
This is the message that has been given to Paul from Christ. They are the words of life. It's the message of forgiveness. It's the message of calling. It's the message of eternal life. It's the message of grace, not works. It's the message of hope. It's the message of God. And Paul is reiterating this to his understudy so as to remind him what he should be working for. What he should be prioritizing. What he should be willing to die for, imprisoned for, take the shame of, suffer for. Why? Because it's the message of salvation. It's the message of life. Think of a a dear person to you who you have lost to death. Now multiply that by infinity And that is what is at stake. Eternal life and eternal death. And Paul says, I know this message of life and hope and salvation will continue on. I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I know that somehow... This message of salvation that I have just outlined, it will continue on until Jesus returns, even with me in this tiny prison. But here's the question, Timothy. Will you? Will you allow the Spirit to be a conduit through you in your timidity, replacing fear with power and love and self-control? Will you put to the side whatever strengths you, you may have and submit them to the Lord's service? Will you be one who helps and defends? Will you be one who bears the shame and the suffering? Will you continue on the message of salvation? Or will you be like so many others who have departed? Departed because of shame. Departed for fear of suffering. Departed because they didn't believe the only way of salvation. And so Paul concludes this section with the accounts of both types. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. He couldn't have friends like Rob and Steve. May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. I cannot even imagine the pain that the Apostle Paul went through. Seeing all these people that he loved, all these people that he ministered to, all these people that he traveled with, and even suffered with at times. 
And now they depart. And they desert. And they abandon. And sometimes even worse. But Anesiphorus, he searched for Paul in a city that he didn't know. For a person that no one wanted to be associated with. Putting his own life at risk just by asking questions of Paul's location. Nero had burned the city and and blamed the Christians. And so Onesiphorus' determination was certainly unshakable. And this is a helpful example for Timothy. Why? Because these are all names that he was familiar with. He knew and served with Onesiphorus and probably knew uh, Figilus and Hermogenes as well. Those images of people he knew probably seared in his mind with their actions. Just like my friend I told you about at the beginning, turning his back on the truth of the gospel, abandoning all he once stood for, his face and what I heard him say and the things he's done are seared in my mind. We've already said we are not in the exact same predicament as Timothy. But we do have an ever-increasing secular society that continues to push against truth. We do have family and friends of whom they do not understand what we believe or, or our views. And we know the message for which we have been transformed and of which we've been called to and of which we have a future with. And here's our challenge. Here's our challenge. Stay the course. Guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. Grow in the knowledge of truth. Share the message of salvation with those that the Lord has put in your sphere. Your family, your children, your friends, your colleagues. And remember, it is not the spirit of fear that he has given us, 